Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host in them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because he rested from all of his work which God had made, uh, created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the heavens and earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field was grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no, uh, no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed of ground... Uh, of the for man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he'd formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree uh, grow that is pleasant for the sight and good for the food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden uh, to water the garden and from there it parted and became four river heads. Of the name of the first one is Pishon, it is, it is the skirts of the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx were uh, stone were there. And the name of the second river is Gihon, the name which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hikadel, it is the one that goes uh, towards the east of Assyria. The fourth is the river Euphrates. Then the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Out of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper, a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from a man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed." Genesis is a book of what? Beginnings. You see that here on our slide that you have this uh, word Genesis and what letter is big? It's the beginning, big N. But Genesis is a book of beginnings. Uh, Peggy Harnett's joke, uh, where does it mention baseball in the Bible? Genesis, which is a book of big innings, right? Uh, she told that the other day in the office. It was much better when she told it rather than me, but she's shaking her head at me. I'm going to pay for that. So there you are. Um, Genesis has four key events that we're concerned with. What are they? Creation, the fall, uh, the uh, Babel. What's the other one? And the flood. Creation, fall, flood, Babel. These four events, and particularly which chapters? Genesis chapter 1, 2, Revelation, sorry, Genesis chapter 1 through 11, Genesis chapter 1 through 11, sorry, I should have phrased that probably differently. Four key events, the creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel, those four key events, um, Genesis chapter 1 through 11 chronicles. When we get to chapter 12, we switch from uh, events to what? Uh, 
people. And who are the four key people of Genesis that it follows? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and who? Joseph, exactly right. Abraham goes from Genesis chapter 12 to 24. Uh, Isaac takes the baton then, uh, Genesis 25 to 27. Jacob from 28 to 36. And then it follows the life of Joseph from uh, chapter 37 on through, through 50. Uh, when we link back up with Joseph, or excuse me, with Jacob, and bring his uh, family all into the land of Canaan, or land of uh, Goshen, rather, in Egypt. As you get to Genesis chapter 2, <coughs> Okay, <clears throat> excuse me. Occasionally, what you'll hear is an argument that's leveled against uh, uh, skept or leveled by skeptics that it is incongruous with Genesis chapter one. One man said it's almost like you have somebody else's version of creation in this chapter. However, what I believe that you have more than anything is a close-up look at one of these days of creation. You remember Genesis chapter one, verse or, uh, first day that God created. He created light. Day two, day two, God made seas and sky so blue. Day three, day three, God made the grass and flowers and trees. Day four, sun, moon, and stars galore. Day five, uh, birds and fish alive. Day six, God uh, created animals and man that day. And then day seven, God rested in his heaven or up in heaven. And as you look at Genesis chapter two, what you have more than that is really kind of a look at God and his personal relationship to man about what particularly God was doing there on day six in order to make uh, earth really a, um, a special place for man. Remember that there's something different about man that's different than every other thing that God created. And I think what you find there in verse seven of chapter two is the key. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living word there is Nephesh, soul, spirit. God in, put in you and put in me, put in mankind, something different that the animals don't have. The animals have the breath of life. They have something that animates them, that keeps them moving. Life can only come from life and that of its kind. God uh, establishes that principle back in Genesis chapter 1. But there's something different about you and me because into each one of us, God puts the eternal. God puts a living soul. There's something that you have as far as the hope that you have in the way that you shepherd and way that you guide your soul according to what God said or not according to what God said that's going to have eternal ramifications, it's going to have eternal consequences. And so as God creates us and as he creates mankind, he makes us different than every other animal uh, every other created thing that he made uh, in the process of these six days of creation and then resting on the seventh day. There are a number of firsts here as seen in Genesis chapter 2 that I think it's well worth us looking at and uh, paying attention to as we uh, run through this chapter here this morning. Let's uh, outline Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to do it in a series of firsts. The very first one is that we would call this the first Sabbath, the first Sabbath. Those of you that were in this class last week, we connected this already to the Genesis chapter one and the seven days of creation, six days of creation, seventh on the day that God rested. The word Sabbath is not found in this section, but it simply means to cease working or to rest. Note also that there is no evening and no morning mentioned here on day seven, suggesting that this rest was not intended to end. Um, Genesis 1:31, he God had already made everything good, and what more it was. Uh, God 
laying down his creative power, God stopping and ceasing his work because he had made everything in creation and he had made it, Genesis 1 verse 31, very good. What was it that caused God to start working again, if we could say that? It was sin. We don't find God taking actionable steps after Genesis chapter 2 until after it was that mankind chose what was wrong in God's sight in Genesis chapter 3. As God picks up his, well, his, his hammer, as it were, again, to begin to work out this plan of salvation. And as God begins to work in human, humans' lives again, he did so in Genesis chapter 3 based upon the fact that mankind had committed that which was evil in his sight. And now God has got to do something about the sin problem because Lord knows that we're not able to do anything of it ourselves. Isn't that right? Which brings to mind Hebrews chapter 1. That after Christ had once for all offered that sin, offered that, uh, that atonement for sin, that uh, forgiveness of sins, he'd offered himself once, blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews 9, couldn't take away sin. What did Jesus Christ do? He sat down at the right hand of God. His work as the priest that was going to take away our sins was over. His sacrifice was done. God's work had been accomplished. Jesus said in John chapter 19, it is finished. God finished the work that he had planned to do through Jesus Christ. But it was only after, uh, uh, only after it was that he had been able to. After Genesis chapter 3, God begins working again in this plan of salvation. Note that a couple of things that the Sabbath is connected to, and uh, you can just write down, jot down the, uh, the scripture references. Sabbath is crea uh, connected to creation. The fact that man has a day that he rests is connected all the way back here to Genesis chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 2. You'll find that one of the reasons for the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, he connects all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 from Exodus 20 verses 8 through 11. The reason why it was that the Israelites were commanded to observe the Sabbath is because God connected that as a day of rest and a day of thinking about him and a day of worship. Note that God also refers to this as a special relationship between God and Israel. God gave the Sabbath to man. God made the Sabbath for man, as Jesus would come along and say years later. Uh, God didn't create man for the Sabbath. That is, God didn't make it as such a burden uh, for man to observe and kind of walk around and, and shaking in fear about whether or not he was going to violate or not. God also connects the Sabbath to the exodus from Egypt. The exodus from Egypt. You go to Deuteronomy chapter 5. What were the people doing in Egypt? They were slaves. They were working. In fact, Pharaoh had made it so bad on them towards the end that he was telling them to make bricks with no straw. You're going to have to keep the same quota of bricks, but you're going to have to go and gather your own straw. And the Israelites were working and working and working and working. And God says, what I've given you, Israelites, is a Sabbath, a rest, just like God resting from his labor. Um, God connects it to the exodus from Egypt. God also connects it to the rest after a Christian life. The Sabbath that we have as Christians, who is Jesus Christ, but has yet to be realized. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. 
Uh, we looked at this briefly last week, but it's, uh, it's good for you to go back and look at again. The rest after Christian life is that we are expecting to go into the land of rest. O land of rest, for thee I sigh, when will the moment come, when I shall lay my armor by and rest in peace at home. We'll work till Jesus comes, and then we'll be gathered home. We'll have an opportunity to rest. The implication is, folks, that now we're in the time where we work. The implication is now is the time that we labor. So it makes that rest all the sweeter, especially as we, you know, Hebrews chapter 10, see the day approaching. The first Sabbath. Secondly, the first garden. The first garden. Verses 4 to 14 talk about where the garden was located. It talks about uh, how God caused the plants to grow and the trees to grow to make this a really special place for uh, well, for Adam, for his crowning achievement. I hate to make this likeness, but we do this sometimes with our pets, right? We do this with, you know, the things that are that we bring in our, our uh, My kids are, uh, the lizards are out in full force in our house. And uh, my kids are always in the backyard going and grabbing those lizards and putting them in uh, some kind of container or box. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to fashion a environment where they think this uh, this this lizard will be happy. <laughs> I said, well, if you want to make him happy, let him go. You know, but that's uh, that's anyway. But you understand that, you know, we buy those nice plush beds for our dogs and things like that. Don't think of yourself like that. But again, we understand the concept of trying to make things comfortable for the things that we love. Here's God looking at mankind who is created in his image. <clears throat> We're not talking about a pet. <clears throat> Excuse me. God didn't create you and me to be pets. But God knew because we are created in his image, the things that would be perfect for mankind. And as God fashions this very perfect place and this very perfect garden and this very perfect uh, setting and this very, uh, well, everything that he made, he made for man. But he made man and put him in this garden. But he created Adam and he put Adam in here as Adam, the worker, Adam, the worker. Work was not a consequence of the fall. Work was something that God had created man to do. Look at verse 5. The Lord had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to what? Till the ground. This is before God had created man. Look down in verse uh, 15. Verse 15. After God had created man, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. God's role for man and for Adam, the worker, is that he was going to be able to stay there and take care of this garden, to feed it, to nourish it, and to cause the plants to grow and to harvest the, uh, the vegetables and the, the, the things that were there growing in the garden. Humans are created as stewards of God's blessings. And the same God who ordains the end, that is a beautiful garden, also in, uh, ordains the means to the end, that is somebody to do the work. When Jesus had his disciples and Jesus sat there and talked to uh, the woman by the well and his disciples came and nobody was asking how, uh, uh, where he got food to eat. He said, my food is to do the, uh, the will of the one who sent me. And then he uses this illustration and says, 
Do you not say, look up your eyes to the harvest or uh, six more months is going to come a harvest? He says, lift up your eyes. Look, there's work to be done. As all those uh, Gentiles came from the, or the Samaritans came out to uh, to see him based upon the, the testimony of the woman created the, who was there by the well. Note also that Adam was put there as a tenant, as a tenant. God expected man to live there. The Lord planted a garden, verse 8, eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. God wanted man to delight in this place. The word Eden itself simply means delight or a place of much water. And God wanted man to enjoy what it was that he created. He wanted him to flourish in the place where he put him. Sometimes people get the feeling that they would be happier with what they don't have. Some people get the idea that if I just had a bigger house or a better car or or those things, when what God really wants of us is to be content wherever it is that we are, to be content with such things as we have. Jesus said, why do you worry about your life? You know, uh, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Is not your life more than food and clothing and all those things? He says, trust in your father. Dwell where it is that you are. One person said, grow where you're planted. It's a great lesson for all of us. Just by way of passing over here, a couple of script, uh, gardens that are used in Scripture that uh, is good for us to look at. Number one is Eden where sin entered. Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3. very first garden is the garden that we're talking about this morning. It's the place where sin entered. <clears throat> Another garden of scripture is Gethsemane, the place where Christ yielded to the will of the Father. Why did he do that? He did so because of what happened way back here in the garden. Gethsemane, where Christ yielded to the will of the Father. Remember, he said, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not what I want, but what you want, Father. There's a garden there at the tomb. Calvary, where he was died, buried, and where the tomb was found empty. The garden tomb, where Christ was victorious over death. But then ultimately, you find the garden, which is the heavenly paradise. Word paradiso in Latin, the word paradise is simply a garden, a beautiful garden, a walled garden, a garden city. And what God is trying to get us to is the place and the point where we're back in the garden, dwelling in a perfect relationship with him, where we'll be free from sin, where sin and sorrow and pain and all those things that we face here on this life we'll never have to face again, Genesis, or excuse me, Revelation 21 22. I don't know, somebody could probably preach that if they wanted to. Questions or comments as we're moving rapidly along? Morris says, never understood why God made light on the first day, but didn't make the sun, moon, and stars till the fourth day. Well, good question. Let's think about it logically just for a moment. God creates light. 
God makes light and realizes this is going to be the source for all life. Even though it was that on day three, he made the plants and uh, the shrubs and all the grass and all those things there on day three, which means that evening and morning came and those plants dwelt in what? Well, they dwelt in darkness because there wasn't any light. Uh, that is the sun, moon, stars. However, what we also find is God is light and in him is no darkness at all. It could be that, again, just surmising here, that uh, God was the light that was the source of, well, growth for those things there on day three. When he created the sun, the moon, and stars, the light, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, God knew that this was what was going to sustain the earth and all that was in it as it was that he was going to continue his creation. Here's the other thing. And again, God knows the way that man thinks. God anticipates all false doctrines, doesn't he? You know, a lot of people say is when they try and harmonize creation with evolution, they call it theistic evolution. And they try and say, well, God did create the world, but he did so through the process of evolution. And so each one of those days was millions and millions and millions of years. What's the problem with that? If God created the earth and created the plants and flowers and grass and trees and all the shrubbery that we have around us. And then it was millions and millions and millions and millions of years until they had a light source. What would be the survival rate of that? There wouldn't be any really. And so at least in some part, I think that we could say that God did things the way that he did things so that, you know, man would be without excuse whenever it was that it came things like uh, like this doctrine. Again, in the wisdom of God, he knows why. Um, but at the same time, he didn't do the trees and the grass and flowers if it was that they were in darkness on the third day from evening to morning um, until it was that uh, that he created the sun, moon and stars on the on day four. It's a good question. I mean, again, all I can do is surmise, but uh, that's about the extent of my surmisal. Is that a word? Is now. Yeah, and God creating a definite time for evening and morning. Again, what did that look like on the first three days until it created the sun, moon, stars? Again, day four, he said specifically that they were created for the times and for the signs and for the seasons. People can look up at the sky and say, oh, look, it's 11 o'clock. I can't do that, but you understand. They could look and they could see the times, but how was it reckoned? It could be that, um, yeah, I don't know. I'd be speaking out of terms. Sir? Right. 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 Great discussion. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Genesis chapter two. We're back to day six here. You got a first law. First law. Lord God took a man, put him in the garden to eat and to tend to keep it. The Lord commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
One simple rule. But the question that we always come to whenever we get to this passage is, why did God place the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden to begin with? Why was it even there to begin with if God knew that man would sin? Things that make you go, hmm. All right. Don brings up John 14, verse 15. Jesus said, if you love me, Keep my commandments. As man would continually pass by that tree from day to day and wouldn't touch it and wouldn't uh, wouldn't uh, uh, violate that commandment, is man demonstrating his love for God and his respect for His Word? Absolutely. A couple of reasons that I put down here on paper is this: number one, it's a symbol of God's authority. It's an opportunity to say God is sovereign and says, this is my law. This is what uh, what I expect of you. And as God puts that tree of knowledge of good and evil in there, he also gives man a choice. You see, man had free access to the tree of life. That is immortality. For as often as he ate of that tree, he would continue to live and he would continue to live in this garden. However, what would happen is on the day that they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they would have this experiential knowledge of doing that which was displeasing to God, of making a choice that would cause them to have a rift in that relationship because now they had been disobedient. Now they had transgressed, gone beyond the commandment of God. Now, sin is a transgression of God's commandment. It's a uh, uh, stepping beyond the boundary. It's a missing the mark, as we use the definition for sin. And as man committed that sin, now there's a difference of the relationship. And the way that man would demonstrate their love and trust, as Don mentioned, for God was to, well, not eat of it. There are some commands that God gives that are prohibitive in nature. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. There are some things that God doesn't want us to be a part of. However, there's other commands that God absolutely does want us to be a part of. God placing man in the garden and wanting him to tend it and take care of it and, and all those things. There's ways that man shows that he's obedient and loves God by those things. But there's no obedience where there's no authority. If God had just placed man in that garden, the man wouldn't have been any different than that lizard in that cage or that lizard in that box that my kids put. The lizard doesn't have any choice. You know, those kids can be as mean as they want to to that lizard, and that lizard can't say anything because there's no, you know, there's no <laughs> illustration breaks down, but you understand that the lizard doesn't have a choice. As a being created in the image of God, God wanted us to demonstrate our love and our obedience to him, our, uh, our respect for him by following what it was that God said. If he had never given that choice, then again, there wouldn't have been any difference in, um, well, us and one of the animals. There's no obedience where there's no authority. Sir? Right. He gives a whole lot more than he asks for. That's a that's a very pertinent uh, uh, point to be made. 
And absolutely, God's blessings in abundance are far beyond the prohibitive nature of what it is that he keeps us from. God knew that this would be for man's good. God knew it was for man's continuance in the garden. God showering his blessings on man. God knew what would happen if man violated that command. And the blessings and abundance all around these people and them living in this garden was far greater than anything that they could have received from that tree. But as it was, as we know, devil can make something that God said no to look extremely appealing, can't he? Now, all the devil had to do was just with a few words shift around Eve's thinking to say, you know what, Eve, God's trying to keep you from something good. God's trying to hide the best life from you. And now all of a sudden, instead of all of those beautiful, delicious fruit trees, instead of that tree of life that they've had free access to, now all she could think about was, that's a good looking tree right there. That's some good looking fruit on that tree right there. I'll bet that that tree can really make me wise. And we'll talk more about that next week. But that's the one simple rule. Here's a question. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You ever ask the question why Adam and Eve didn't die, drop dead, after they partook of that tree of knowledge of good and evil? I'll let you chew on that until next week, and Lord willing, you know, we'll be back together. But Yes, sir. Okay. All right, George offers a solution. Hold on to that for next week, and we'll uh, we'll visit it then. But again, oh, okay, <laughs> very good. You were already going to make the comment before I made the comment, so there you go. We uh, air fist bump, George. There you go. Uh, any other questions, other comments before we leave this point here? All righty-o. First law, and lastly, this morning, the first marriage. First marriage. Verse 18 is the very first time that it's mentioned that things are not good. And the Lord God said, note again that this is the first time in this chapter that the personal name of God is used. What's the personal name of God? All right, Lord God, but L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D, what are we talking about? Jehovah, Yahweh, um, however it is you want to say, the Tetragrammaton, if, uh, if you're scholastic, Y-H-W-H. Here's the personal name of God. It's not used at all in Genesis chapter 1. It's not used till Genesis chapter 2 where God is personally dealing with mankind. What's the word in Genesis chapter 1 that's used over and over and over for God? Oh, it's not Yahweh. That's not till chapter 2. What's Elohim, right? The sovereign, the majestic, the, uh, the creative force, the one who is elevated, exalted. That's the name that's used as God creates throughout the six days of creation. But when we get a closer look in Genesis chapter 2 of God doing things for mankind, you find his personal name, that he's there personally breathing into man's nostrils the breath of life. As God looks, of the, uh, let's see, the Lord God said it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. 
Genesis chapter uh, 2, verses 19 and 20. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adams to see what he would call them. <laughs> Another Peggy Harnage joke. She said, and John Batchelder was there to take pictures of all of them and, and post them online. I'm, <laughs> I'm already on bad graces with Peggy, so I didn't mind uh, saying that one. But... <laughs> I got a kick out of it, so maybe you did too. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, all the birds of the air, every beast of the field. Why did God do that at this point, do you suppose? Here's God looking and saying, it's not good the man should be alone. And as he forms all of the animals and all of the birds and all those things that are there on day six. Why does he then bring them all to Adam as he gives them their name? Giraffe, rhinoceros, hippopotamus, pteranodon. All right, Monica brings up the idea that Again, Genesis chapter 1, uh, God gave man dominion over all the animals. It wasn't the animals that named man. It was man that named the animals. I, I'll agree with that. Why else? To show them that none of them were right or compatible with them. It wasn't just the fact that God knew that there wasn't a help meet or a helper that was comparable to man. But there's something about bringing all of the animals and bringing everything that God created and man saying, yeah, that's great. I'm going to name that a dodo bird or whatever it is and moves it along. And then next thing you know, comes another one, another one, another one, another one. And man seeing not only his uniqueness, but also an understanding that man is alone in all of this. Now, there's one thing about telling your kids something and saying this is not right. Versus another thing, whenever you're able to show your kids that it's not right or it's not good and you're a, they're able to see it on their own, um, it seems like that that's what God is doing, is bringing these, these creatures and showing the man that there's no one like him, but then there's also no one like him. Yes, sir. We know God takes joy in watching man enjoy the goodness that he's provided for him. You know, John, the apostle, inspired of the Holy Spirit, said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And as John took joy in that, again, him with the character of Christ, him with the character of God, you see God looking down at mankind and taking joy in man, enjoying the life that he's created for him, enjoying the abundant life that Jesus Christ provides for him, John 10, verse 10. And as Don brings up, it's, you know, it's kind of fun to watch. You know, when you give your children a gift, um, you give them a toy or something that they've, that they've been wanting and maybe a stuffed animal. And I always wonder, you know, why it is my kids call their stuffed animals certain things, you know, what? I don't know, get a little berry, you call her Sally. 
what made you call her Sally? And I would imagine, at least in God's creative power, as Don was mentioning, there's a joy in watching man name each one of these animals to see what he would call them. But then, again, speaking to larger purpose, there's a showing of man that there's no one like you and there's no one that's as created special the way that man is uh, in God's uh, in God's creation. So verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. He slept. He took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place. The rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Hebrew word for man is ish, I-S-H. Hebrew woman for uh, word for woman is isha, I-S-H-S-H-A. H, I think, S-H-A-H, yes, I-S-H-S-H-A-H, which means Isha out of man. It's been observed by more than one preacher on a wedding that God didn't take a bone out of his head that she should rule over him. He didn't take a bone out of his foot so that she should be trampled underneath him, but took out a rib out of the side so that she would be comparable to him, that she would be a part of him and uh, something that he could love and protect and nourish and all those things. And as God brings this woman to the man, she's different than every other animal that uh, every other created thing that God had made. Adam said, verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So she shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. Therefore, here's a law for marriage. A man shall leave, that is loosen, set free himself from his father and mother and shall be joined, glued, adhered to. Uh, there's a loyalty and a devotion there that's uh, built into this word, a compound one to be his wife, and they shall become this compound one, this one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And we'll bring back this verse next week when we talk about sin, about what the consequences of sin are. But this is the very first home that God created. This is the first marriage. A couple of things about this is that this is a beautiful picture of Christ in the church. A beautiful picture of Christ in the church. It says, now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Remember that Eve was the bride. Eve was the one that God wanted that man to take care of. God appointed a spiritual leader, a man as that spiritual leader of the home. And Eve, as the bride, was a responsible, uh, the man was responsible for holding on to and for cherishing and nourishing. You know, Ephesians 5, 21 to 33 talks about this, about how uh, the wife submits herself to the husband, but also how the husband guards and takes care of the wife. You know, that's God's plan. That's what he wanted. He created us different physically. Different physically. But note that Eve was a part of Adam's body. She came out of man. She was taken out of man. Paul said in Ephesians 5, 29 and 30, no man ever hated his own flesh. He nourishes it. He cherishes it just like Christ does the church. As God created this special 
being, the special one for man who was a helper comparable to him. It was something that God expected that relationship to, to be nourished and flourished as, uh, as he had created it. Eve was made, literally built, chapter 2 and verse 22. When you look at, again, the very first point that this is a picture of Christ in the church, you find that Christ was the one that built, made the church. Christ had purposed it. Christ had uh, accomplished that purpose. And then he sent the Holy Spirit so that it might be that we could all be in Christ. The book of Ephesians uses that phrase again and again and again to talk about that. And in the mystery that he gives there in Ephesians 5, 22-33, about how a man loves his wife and how the wife uh, submits herself to the man. Paul says this is a mystery. I'm not just talking about the way that a husband loves his wife or the way the wife submits herself to her husband and loves him. It's about Christ and the church. It's about that beautiful relationship that God purposed. And all the way back here from the beginning, God knew exactly what it was that he was going to do and how it was he was going to do it. And so you find that there's a picture here already of the way that Christ loves the church. A couple of applications, so principles that we might talk about here as uh, our time is rapidly closing. Number one, God expects man to value work and to do his best. There was work to be done in the garden. Again, work wasn't consequence of the fall. Hard work, where man would work and work and work and work and still not be able to produce sometimes, um, what it was that the ground was able to do and how there were thorns and thistles and extra labor that had to be done was a consequence of the fall. However, God had created this man to tend the garden, to keep it and to make sure that it was uh, going along. We need to teach our kids. We need to teach people about the value of work, about the value of hard work. Because we're here not to just freeload, not just to loaf. Um, <laughs> Paul would say in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, if any man doesn't work, what? Don't let him eat. Don't let him eat. God didn't create freeloaders. And we need to make sure that we're teaching people the value of work and honest work and hard work. Number two, God expects that as much as man will appreciate the work that God's given him to do, that man will appreciate the rest that God has afforded. You know, people that don't stop you know, people that go and go and go and go and go, even on their day off, you can't find them sitting and taking their ease sometimes. There's a word that we use for people like that. After a while, we say you're going to what? Burn out. That you're not going to be able to continue to keep up this pace or to continue to function the way that you are. We don't want people to burn out. God doesn't want people to burn out. And God knew that as much as he wanted us to value work, he also wanted us to value the rest that he provided. Number three, <clears throat> when we spend time thinking about and observing God's law, brothers and sisters, that's really the guard that God's given us in keeping our heart from straying. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day, the psalmist said. Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
What's the thing that's going to keep people from straying and from people from uh, abandoning God's will? Read God's word, meditate on God's word, absorb God's word, and realize that God's word is there for our good. How much pain, how much sorrow, how much misery was created because man didn't value God's word the way that he ought to here in Genesis chapter 3, which we'll talk about, Lord willing, next week. Thinking about it and observing God's law will help keep our hearts from straying. Number four, God created marriage not just for happiness, but more for holiness. I wish we could get this across to people in the world. It's not about just that person making you happy. It's that person drawing you nearer to the heart of God and a closer bond with them and a closer bond with the Heavenly Father. It's not just about happiness. If that were true, what happens the first time that that person makes me unhappy? What happens the first time that that person begins to act selfishly? No, there's a understanding, brothers and sisters, that there's not all happy times in marriage, true? Unless I'm doing it wrong, there's not all happy times in marriage. Okay. However, working through those difficult times when one person is being selfish or the other one is, is not being reasonable or however it may be, realize that that helps to make us more like God in those times that we choose to work through. We choose to love this person because every single time that God acted in a way that was beneficial towards humanity, God did so and made that choice to love in spite of. When we love our spouse, sometimes it's in spite of the way that they're acting or the way that they're uh, behaving. God loves us, brothers and sisters, in spite of whether or not we please him all the time or not. God makes that choice. We make that choice when we choose to love our spouse, even when it, in those times that it seems like they're unlovable. Even when they're being too busy being selfish, we're going to choose to do that because that's what God does for us. We become more in line with the character and holiness of God because we make the choice every single time to go back because this is a commitment that we have made to our spouse. So shall a man leave his father and mother and be glued unto his wife. You may leave me, but I'm coming too. We have a responsibility to treat marriage not only for our happiness, but especially for our holiness. Thank you for your attention this morning. Uh, folks are coming out of their classes. We'll begin our worship here in just a few minutes. Thank you.